Hey, it's Andrew, and I wanted to thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Did you know that you can subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts to have new episodes delivered to your feed twice a week on Wednesday and Friday? All you have to do is pick up your phone, navigate to your podcast app, and search for Door County or Door County Pulse podcast and click subscribe. If you're a longtime listener or if this is your first episode, we hope you enjoy the Door County Pulse podcast. Hello and welcome to One on One, a Door County Pulse interview series. I'm Andrew Clyden and I have two special guests with me today, uh, both playwrights who have written a new show that is doing its world premiere at Northern Sky Theater this season. Uh, Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? My name is Corey Bulakovics and... And I am Steve Kovacs. So tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, You guys uh, wrote this play for Northern Sky, but how did you get involved in, in theater first off? Well, I have a degree in musical theater, and so my first summer out of college, I was working for American Folklore Theater, which of course became Northern Sky Theater, and um, I ended up moving out to the East Coast and working professionally there for several several years, where I met Steve. And uh, I have my degree in music education from the Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, not the one in Florida. We were a school before Florida was a state, we like to say, and uh, ended up teaching in Jersey City, New Jersey for nine years, and uh, that's where I met Corey. Um, and my involvement in theater was mostly peripheral to my music teaching, um, but uh, I, since I no longer full-time teach, most of our work has been in theater training. So when you were, when you were on, the, on the East Coast, you were doing theater work. Uh, when did you start getting into playwriting? That actually was a, when we moved back to the Midwest, I was setting up um, my office in our new home and I came across this folder that just had this one page article in it that I had copied all those years ago when I, as an intern for, for AFT, that was just talking about Winnicani seceding from the state of Wisconsin in 1967. And I thought, Hey, you know, I had this idea at the time that we should write a show about it. Maybe, maybe I finally found my writing partner. (laughs) So we like it. Where is your first play that you've written? That is correct. Awesome. It's, the first play that we've written, um, so first book. It's also the first um, songs that I've ever written, first songs and lyrics. Um, so I think there's 12, 12 or 13 songs in the show, and those are the very first I've ever done. Tell me a little bit about the, the playwriting process for you guys then. How, how's the journey been as you've been kind of putting the show together? Uh, it's been it's been very, very fascinating because the first year or two was spent doing a lot of research and trying to piecemeal uh, timelines together and draw all the resource material and figure out what is the story? Where, where do all these dots connect and what's the most compelling way to tell this? And initially, we were going to use classical music and adapt it for our musical. And I think as we got... I don't know, halfway through the process, we realized that we probably were going to need to have some original material. And that's when Steve really stepped up and said, oh, let me try my hand at this. (laughs) I wrote the first song, Driving Home to Ohio to Visit My Parents. I was uh, just kind of humming a tune and that evolved into lyrics to go with the tune. And then I sat at the piano and gave it some structure. Um, I'm I'm not a great pianist by any means, but... um, know enough about theory to be able to sit and and structure out a song. Um, 
And that's and then that went well. And we had some friends who were very encouraging. They said, well, you should go ahead and write the rest of this music. And so I did. Tell me a little bit about your uh, your relationship with Northern Sky. You interned there, but did you have an ongoing relationship with them after that? Well, so the next time that I worked for Northern Sky was in the fall of 2014. I came up and I performed in their fall show at the DCA, The Bachelors, and renewed my acquaintance with company members at that time. And um, I think that's when I started making some noise about uh, where they were with their development pipeline and what we needed to have ready for that. So um, I think within two years after working for them that fall, we had uh, something that I thought we could go, we could, we could go with. And we were starting to look at workshops. My relationship with the theater uh, company is that I'm a fan. (laughs) Um, I've never uh, worked for Northern Sky other than through the development of our show. Um, So just coming to see shows, seeing Corey in shows, uh, getting to know the, the company. So tell me, tell me a little bit about your theatrical ideology. Um, you you have a musical theater degree, but mm-hmm. what what what's kind of your focus, or how do you uh, how do you appreciate the art? I suppose I love musicals. Uh, they're my favorite medium. I love singing and acting and dancing, and musicals, of course, usually have all three components. Um, I'm one of those people who gets bored easily. So in my professional resume, you will see a variety of experiences. You'll see some classical solo work with symphony orchestras. You'll see some cover band material. You'll see straight plays and comedies and a variety of things. So I guess my, my philosophy when it comes to performing is just to play, to have fun, to explore, and to not get bored. And so do you have any theatrical background outside of the, you know, there is a certain amount of theatrics in musical education for sure. But uh, (laughs) is this like your first time doing stuff for stage? Um, No, I have been involved in musical theater since um, middle school, really, uh, performing. Uh, Most of my experience was in performing in musical theater. Uh, And then when we got to Wisconsin started to get a little more involved in uh, music directing for musical theater. I did, I've done a little directing, um, worked with Corey on building choreography for shows. And um, yeah, and I, I found that I didn't grow up with uh, a family that was immersed in musical theater. We liked musical theater movies, but we didn't go to the theater. Uh, so most of my musical experience was uh, primarily with pop music and in the case of my parents, from the 60s, which worked out great for our story, taking place in 1967. Um, but yeah, so so my uh, involvement in musical theater has kind of grown and developed, and I've really come to appreciate music that tells a story, that goes beyond just a, uh, an emotional context. One of the things that we've been doing the last five years, we actually just had our five-year anniversary this spring, is we're running an arts training business in Nina. So we are working to pass our skills and our um, tools, as we call them, onto the next generation. So we've spent a lot of time intensively the last five years of cultivating young talent and and developing means of delivering those storytelling ideas and concepts and find it to be very rewarding. Theatrical education is is something that I... I, I did a lot of in college and, and, and try to continue to do now here in Door County. And it's, it is one of the most rewarding things that you can do. Watching, watching students grow and, and learn a new skill set or push themselves further than they thought they could, those things are, are some of the most valuable experiences I've had. It's thrilling. 
It's when you see students um, open their eyes and their minds and their hearts to uh, to going beyond just what they're the tasks that they're given to do. Here's what's on the page, and here's what it, what you need to do on stage. Um, but then developing that understanding of how do I do that effectively, and then more importantly, why? Why is my character doing what he or she is doing, and how does that serve the story? And that that's really the rewarding part when they start to see that meaning behind all those choices. Well, and it, it's been fun for me too. I'm I'm 25, so my my high school days aren't long behind me. Uh, but I definitely do remember certain things that I would do on stage, and that I've learned over time. Like, oh, that didn't make any sense, or why why was I doing that? So that's been something really fun to try to to show students now is is being like, hey, why are you doing that? And then they're like, I don't know why I'm doing that. It's like, yeah, exactly. So find a reason to know why you're doing certain things. Like I was always like a hands on hips kind of actor. Like mm-hmm. I love, I didn't know what to do with my hands. So they were always on my hips or something, but it's like, that's just me on stage. Like what is the character doing? You know what I mean? So that, that's been one of my favorite things is to go up to students and be like, Hey, why are you doing this? I don't know. Well, let's find out. <laughs> that's awesome. Those yeah. are really good questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why don't we take a break here, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about We Like It Where. It has a really interesting story behind it, and you guys have done a, a lot of work both learning the the true life story and then your adaptation, of course, and I really want to kind of dig in and learn that whole story. Uh, so let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll jump into that. They call themselves the Stradivarius Builders of Sturgeon Bay because the guys at Palmer Johnson were artists in wood and metalwork, anything you imagine. They did it so beautifully well. The first fishermen came down the lake from Pankin Island, worked their way along the north shore of Lake Michigan, and they came because of the whitefish. The whitefish were abundant. In 1945, 2,000 German prisoners of war came to Door County and picked cherries for just one harvest season. Peninsula Filmworks is dedicated to telling the stories of Door County, past, present, and future. To learn more about the history of shipbuilding in Sturgeon Bay, to see how the cherry became a Door County icon, or to watch the peninsula's last remaining fishermen brave the waters to haul in thousands of pounds of whitefish daily, and the many other incredible stories produced with the Door County Visitor Bureau, visit doorcounty.com slash ourdoorcounty. Okay, we are back. So let's let's start from the beginning. Tell me about uh, how you discovered this story first, and then we'll kind of go back and, and walk through the, the real-life tale. So the discovery of the story was uh, from a history book at a public library somewhere in the state of Wisconsin. I still, I've been trying to track down exactly which library this book existed in, and I haven't found it yet, but I'm working on it. It was simply a one-page article that talked about Winnicani seceding from the state of Wisconsin in 1967, and I remember taking it back home to my parents and asking them about it, and they said, oh, yeah, we remember that happening. They didn't have a lot of other details. Uh, so so when I rediscovered that in my office files, uh, we weren't sure where to begin our story. I think we started with a basic internet search, and there's actually a website for for Winnicani's Sovereign State Days, which has a little encapsulation of, here's the, here's the small story. And um, we went to the public library in Winnicani, and that's where we really found a treasure trove full of materials. There's a room at the Winnicani Public Library called the James P. Coughlin Memorial uh, Room, I think. Uh, and it is, it houses 
um, most of his journals and scrapbooks, um, materials that he collected during his 36 years as the village president. Of course, he was the one and only president of the sovereign state of Winnicani when they seceded. And so we found a lot of great information there. Uh, there's a biography about him that was also very helpful in telling not only his part of the story, but but a great with greater detail um, what exactly what happened during those uh, crazy days in 1967. So with that, why don't why don't we jump to the beginning of the story? What 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 actually happened in Winnicani in 1967? <laughs> so so funny story. January rolls around 1967. And a traveling salesman is trying to make his way from Milwaukee and uh, stops in at Winnicani and doesn't know where he is because they're not on the map. And that's how they discovered they weren't on the state highway map. Just a printer's error. They put the dot on the map where Winnicani would be. They just forgot to put the label on. But there course, are... that's, that's very important, right? Because if you're not on the map in those days, you don't exist. Nobody's going to find your town. Something that many people in 2019, especially young people, are going to have to try to absorb because it seems like such a small problem now. Well, just pull up Google Maps. What's the problem? Um, but yeah, for, for a tourist town in 1967 to not be on the state highway map was a huge problem. Uh, Vera Kitchen was the Chamber of Commerce president at the time, and she owned the Arrowhead Restaurant, where a lot of our story takes place. She spearheaded some efforts to reach out to the state government, to Governor Knowles at the time, and try to generate a response and figure out how to resolve their issue. They are a tourism village, and if you can't find them on a map when you don't have the internet, how do you find them? So it's it started this whole uh series of committee meetings with uh, James P. Coughlin, the village president, Vera Kitchen, the chamber of commerce president. And there were an ancillary, amazing array of individuals who were involved in various capacities in the development of this. For our storytelling purposes, we narrowed things down to a sum total of four roles that we focus on that are sort of um, amalgamations, um, condensed characters. So we have representations of everybody. In our committee, we include uh, William Schlappman, who was the CEO of the Colt Manufacturing Company, right, in town? Right, which was owned by uh, the Case Manufacturing Company. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have uh, C.O. Rogers, who is the newsman in town. He was the owner and operator of the Winnicani News, which is still, uh, still prints, still in existence. And uh, he also owned a printing and publishing company, which is, I, I believe, he was the first contact with the printing salesman who couldn't find the village. And and his article, his column, Look Out Below, about the story kind of is what kicked it all off. Just to make things more um, interesting, in 1967, uh, Governor Knowles had just won re-election, and one of the big um, pieces of his campaign was a tourist um, marketing campaign called We Like It Here. Uh, and here's this little tourism village that's been left off the map. So, of course, C.O. Rogers played with the words of the tourism campaign and turned it into, we like it, where? And that's how the uh, title of the show came to be. So what what was Winnicani hoping to to gain by its secession? Was it was it a publicity stunt to try to not necessarily rectify, but but bolster public awareness of the town having had it left off? Or, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They had uh, uh, 
a vendor table set up uh, in Chicago for, to promote their boat races, and they would go every year. And this this um, secession idea just kind of bolstered and boosted that event. But before before they even came up with that secession idea, they had a contest that they put in the paper. Submit your your suggestion to get Winniconnie put back on the map, and they ended up this this story ended up getting picked up all over the nation. And so entries poured in. And Jan Badke and Kay Klipstein, who were from the region, I can't say Winniconnie especially, although they have, of course, since been adopted as honorary Winniconians. Um, They were working in D.C. in the federal government, and they wanted to get a trip home because that was one of the prizes was you would get a free trip home. So they worked together with Russ Meerdink, who's another one of our characters, and he's um, Jan's fiance. And they ended up submitting this amazing idea to secede, which had a bunch of other, they ended up sending a follow-up letter with supplemental materials of here are other ways you can, you can, you can fill out this proposal. Uh, and the committee took them up on a bunch of them. And when, when they came up with that, when they picked that secession idea, which governor Knowles was in on, he sort of helped promote the, the town and that idea. It, that, that particular story got picked up internationally. And made it all the way around the world. So this this became not only a, a boon for Winnicani as a tourist location, but also became something for Wisconsin. Wisconsin kind of became a celebrity at the heart of this story, correct? And what's amazing about the story traveling the globe, not just being a national story, is this is 1967 and every newspaper on um, the front page, it was coverage of the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement. It's uh, right at the start of the women's liberation movement. There are all these monumental things happening in the world, um, riots and protests on uh, college campuses. And somehow this little problem with this little village in, in Wisconsin got picked up. And, and I think what attracted people at the time to that story was the joy and the humor with which they approached the problem. Um, it, it was silly and it was full of antics. And I think that appealed at a time when there was so much division and divisiveness. Did Winnicani ever actually secede? Or was this all kind of a, uh, we're going to, to generate the buzz? So they seceded technically for a day. Um, it was, again, it was sort of staged with uh, cooperation from the state government. Um, so they officially seceded for, it was probably, well, it was less than a day. It was for a few hours. Uh, and then Governor Knowles made a phone call and they negotiated the return of Winnicani as a village in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, they but weren't. I, I don't think James P. Coughlin signed anything until Sunday morning. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> so <technically>. true. <laughs> so it may have actually lasted 24 hours. Um, but they, you know, it, by that time it was July. The year was half over. And uh, Governor Knowles, understandably, um, was not going to spend a lot of money to reprint the maps just for that that one small error. So they they came up with other ways to try to draw people to Winnicani, some special highway signs. The uh, the Chamber of Commerce was given permission to proof the 1968 maps to make sure they were back. Um, and so, yeah, so it turned out to be that the publicity stunt made Winnicani more visible than the map ever would have. So it was kind of, it was kind of serendipitous in a way that all of this worked out and it was... It was this sweet, humorous kind of 
game that was played to to, to rectify a situation that was was just a, a printing error at the end of the day. It, it turned into this big thing that that everybody had a good time with, which is kind of the takeaway that I'm getting here. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't just a podium where they waited for the governor's call and and just sort of made an official statement in front of the uh, the village hall. They turned it into a giant event. Uh, there were there was a big parade. There were picnics and fireworks, uh, boat races, all all kinds of activities that day, and. And they went all out. They had a toll bridge where they were um, uh, doing a monetary exchange for, I believe it was wooden nickels was mm-hmm. the currency of the day. Um, they were given uh, sovereign state of Winnicani ID cards as citizens. Um, they, they really played it up and, and made it a really joyous event. And it's something that they do now every summer is they have the annual Sovereign State Days weekend. And they still charge uh, a little toll to cross the bridge on Saturday mornings from 8 until noon. You get a, a, a sticker or, or something depending on the year. And it's, it's a hoot. It's just, a, it's just a, good, a good time. Although I have to say, I think the committee had more fun on the planning meetings for this event, just brainstorming and coming up with fun ideas. And of course... They had a lot of these meetings at the Arrowhead restaurant, so there were drinks available and it just just the good natured fun. So tell me about sitting down to write We Like It Where. Uh, you you did your research, of course, uh, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the, the people that you met along the way, too. But uh, where did you start? Well, once we got through that research stage, we had to decide how to pare down a story that takes place over the course of over six months and involves potentially hundreds of people. Uh, I think the committee was over 30 individuals, and and we knew that that, that just wasn't going to work on stage. So we had to figure out ways to condense and, and uh, uh, combine characters. So th- I think that was the, the next big step after the research was figuring out how to make this giant story that it became uh, work in 90 minutes on a musical theater stage. That was definitely one of the challenges that we faced. Also trying to figure out, um, we got into our first workshop and we were asked, what's your show about? And we thought we knew what the show was about. Um, But I think by the end of the week, we realized that we maybe needed to rethink our idea of what our show is about. <laughs> now, are you, are you talking in terms of like, yeah, of course, you're like, oh, it's about the secession of Winnicani, but then right. you had to discover that it's a, a coming-of-age story or a, a growth story. Was it something like that? It was, we, had a, a, we had an archetype of what we thought the story was because what it seemed to be was the little engine that could. Um, but what we really hadn't dug into was the takeaway message of the show. So the audience sees this production and they leave with what message what is what's at the heart of that story and that was what we had to really kind of refocus on and i think once we did that that's when material in the show really started to land and take off what was it like trying to adapt the research that you did into a a narrative a character driven narrative challenging uh, somewhat frustrating at times because you want to be true to the source material, but you also want to find a way to make the story uh, compelling for stage reasons. So I think um, one of the things that Steve did so beautifully was to kind of help 
flesh out and pull this and stretch the story and come up with, well, what if we did this way or what if we did it that way? Or how does if we tell the story and we thread the needle through this particular arc, can we make the story sing even stronger? Um, And that was that was really helpful. Finding those um, uh, fictional, sometimes completely fictional and oftentimes just little stretches and bends of the truth trying to figure out where those could live within this true story with real people as characters was um, was a little bit challenging, but it was also fun because when you're working with a real story, there's a, a structure in place that you kind of have to follow. But then trying to find those places where your creativity can take over uh, to bend the truth a little bit to make it play better on stage. We've even been discovering in the last week or so of rehearsals how to continue finessing and judging the story. You know, we've been making little tweaks and cuts and, oh, put this other line in here and that'll help. So there's constant discovery. It doesn't ever really stop. And actually, along those lines, I think one of the brilliant byproducts of this story is it seems to be very well suited to um, the medium of musical theater and particularly a musical theater community working on it. I felt like our rehearsal process is channeling those committee meetings in 1967. The joy, the antics, the collaboration has been just delightful. And I, as a, as a member of the theater community, I really appreciate when, when uh, members of that community live the story that they're telling, that they live that meaning and message. How collaborative has the has the rehearsal process been with you guys? Uh, a lot of times, playwrights will will write their script and it will get sent off, and they they don't get to see it until it opens. Uh, have Have you guys had to? Have you guys been able to to kind of be hands on in the creation of this? It's been really exciting to uh, collaborate every single day with actors, with the director, with stage management. Um, with Jeff Herps as the artistic director, looking for little tiny tweaks, little threads to pull to make the story even better. And, you know, you go, you go to see a show and you see the program and it says, you know, book by, music and lyrics by, directed by. And everybody kind of has their, uh, their responsibilities and the roles in which they served. But, um, but those roles cross over so much. So when you come see our show, you're going to see the director Molly Rohde's contributions as much as you'll see ours. You're going to hear uh, Dennis Johnson's arrangements as much as my composition. So it's um, it's very collaborative. You're even going to hear our individual musicians' contributions because they've come up with ideas. Once they got what we were trying to accomplish with the music stylings, it's all music stylings of the 60s. So you get to get a taste of that era when you come to see the show. Um, but they're all brilliant and creative and and buying into the show. So they're adding their own creations as well, which is just delightful. Yeah, and it must be it must be really great to be able to see this thing that you've been working on get into the hands of some other people and and start getting molded in ways that you that you never even thought of. Uh, like I said, it, it's kind of the playwright's dream to be able to collaborate in that way to to create their work for the first time because unless they're they're workshopping with a house that is collaborative and is dedicated to making new works like Northern Sky is, a lot of times they once they publish it's out of their hands and 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 they don't they don't get that opportunity like you guys are getting. So it, it must feel really cool to be able to do that. 
it's it's pretty spectacular, and I I would say that it, it, I can't imagine any other company other than Northern Sky producing this show at this point in time. They've they've managed it so beautifully. It's yeah, and it's great to find that finding those uh, places in the story where. Um, as as the authors, we're we're going to be very passionate about certain choices, certain lines, certain ideas. Um, but but the actors and the director and and all the other collaborators have brilliant ideas, and they and they they bring them forth. And it's great to have those conversations about. Well, yes, we can absolutely do that, and here's why. Um, it's yeah, it's been really fun to for them to have access to us, and for us to have access. To them, and I really do feel like everyone in the room, uh, just like all of the characters who succeed in our story, they are exceeding expectations. They are going further than than their role might dictate, or or further than they think they might be capable of going, and that's really at the heart of this story. Which is a fun tie back to our philosophy as arts educators in the Fox Cities. We believe in in pushing our students beyond their self-imposed limitations. So this story really rings true for us. The other fun thing that, that we get to see by being involved in the rehearsal process is we took a lot of our source material from a little red book published by, I believe, the Winnicani Historical Society that kind of takes all of the source material for the initial secession and, and consecutive sovereign state days and compiles them. We've been passing this book around the company and to see them as they, as they get to take the book for the night and read through and page through and look at pictures has been so fun, so fun and exciting. The, the last little bit that I want to talk about before we start to wrap up, uh, you had the opportunity to meet some people from the sovereign state of Winnicani while you were doing your research and creating the play. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Well, two of our characters are alive and well, and they live in Nina. Um, that's Jan and Russ Meerdink. Jan was one of the contest winners who was living in Washington, D.C., um, so she and her friend Kay Klipstein came up with the idea to secede. Uh, and uh, they own a horse ranch. Um, Russ has written uh, quite a few publications, and I think a book also. Uh, he's very well known for uh, helping to identify um, uh, certain things to look for when you're going to purchase a, like a championship horse. Uh, and so he's, he's become relatively successful with that, quite successful. Uh, and then we have also met, um, living relatives of other characters in the show. So Vera Kitchen's grandniece, Lori, Lori Meyerhofer, was uh, one of our initial contacts in Winnicani, and she's been a champion of our project and has been wonderful with helping us develop ties to the community and communicate with them. We actually were able to perform some of our songs at the 50th annual Sovereign State Days weekend at the Pancake Breakfast <laughs> on Sunday morning. Um, that was two summers ago. And, uh, and we, at that, at that 50th celebration, we were able to meet, uh, Vera Kitchen's sister and a bunch of extended family members. And they, um, I think one of our, one of our actors who was, who was singing for us at that particular performance got to meet, uh, a family relative of C.O. Rogers. And so to have that opportunity to connect with those people in that community was, was just mind-blowing and exciting and awesome. And um, and we were able to then also do a staged reading for them this last fall 
at the new Winnicani Auditorium. They they were able to build, they've never had an auditorium before and they pushed through some sort of referendum and then to sort of inaugurate this this new facility, we brought our, our stage reading over there and the community members came in and really enjoyed it and were very excited about when could they come and see the show. <laughs> and when could they teach their their students about it? You know, the, the students in their community don't know why they have a Sovereign State Days weekend every year. What is, what is the big deal? So to have an, a musical opportunity opportunity to share with them in terms of an entertaining educational way of, of explaining this whole debacle. It was really fun. It's a small community, and it's but it's a growing community, and so many of the families who live there now uh, don't have ties to that era of the village. And so that's why they kind of show up for Sovereign State Days, and they have no idea why they're celebrating, but it's just a good time. <laughs> well, with that, let's, let's wrap up here. Uh, we Like It Where is part of Northern Sky's summer season. Do you know which nights it's going to be playing on? We absolutely do. Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Perfect. We're recording this uh, May 31st, so this is before uh, opening night has happened, which is, you know, pretty exciting. Where, where are you guys in the in the process right now? Have you, have you finished rehearsals, or are you moving into the, the tech side of things? We have two more days of uh, regular rehearsals before we move to the park and have some more technical components to juggle in. So uh, it's amazing how long these days are and what you can accomplish in them. So two days may not seem like much, but it's it's also quite an eternity. <laughs> we are, um, yeah, we're, we're thrilled with where the show is at right now. Um, I'm going to be seeing rehearsal today and tomorrow, and then I have to get back to the Fox Cities for other work that I have. So I won't see the show again until it opens. Uh, so I'll be back June 12th for that first uh, preview performance. And I'm excited to see it's it's come so far uh, the last few weeks to see where it goes once they get into tech and and start dealing with all those other components that are that are going to hopefully pop even more color in the sh- in the story. Well, I'm looking forward to checking it out this year. Uh, it might actually be my first Northern Sky show that I see. Wow. Uh, I've been up here for a couple of years, and it's just the the nature of doing the work that I do that um, unless I'm getting paid to see a show in some way, I can I can't can't find the time to go do it. And it was the same thing in college, too. You know what I mean? Like, you want to go out and you want to see theater all the time, but you just you, you can't because you're in rehearsals or, or doing that kind of stuff. So uh, if, it, if it does end up being my first Northern Sky show, I'm looking forward to it. Let us know. Yeah. Can't wait to have you. Thank you guys for coming in and talking about We Like It Where. Uh, it should be a really cool show, and I'm excited to check it out. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. For more Door County news, interviews, and exclusive content, check us out at DoorCountyPulse.com or pick up this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse available every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast to get new episodes delivered straight to your device twice a week. Thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast.